Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. This week, I chat with Tom O'Halloran from Mechanics of Movement. Tom is a physiotherapist and exercise scientist with a special interest in biomechanics, strength and conditioning, and really anything movement-related. Throughout the episode, we talk through Tom's evolving journey with his approach to physio and rehab, the critical importance of building self-efficacy for clients and clinicians, the fundamentals of biomechanics and how it can be helpful for problem solving, as well as the use of play-based approaches for skill learning and whole body integration. This week's episode is brought to you by our TFC online store. By showing your support there, it supports us and means that we can keep on doing what we love and that's helping our community, our TFC tribe, reclaim strong, resilient, pain-free bodies from the ground up. We now have a range of products from Wild Toes, our toe spaces, to cork mobility balls, hacky sacks that are handmade in Guatemala, and of course, our TFC balance beams. $5 from every order also goes towards planting a tree with our partnership with Reforest Now. And to say a big thanks to all of our podcast listeners, we now have a special discount just for you. If you use the code DOWNUNDER, that's DOWNUNDER, one word, at checkout, you'll get 10% off your next order. Just head to TFC shopaus.com to check it out. All right, so Tom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, mate. No worries. Thanks for having me, James. Uh, it's, it's been a long time coming. We've been in touch sort of through Instagram mostly over the past year or so, I think, or maybe, maybe a couple of years. I don't know. Time's flying these days. Um, and then we finally caught up uh, in Melbourne when we were last there for a workshop, which you came along to. Um, and then we also had a, a, a massive chat on the phone a few weeks back uh, about a lot of different stuff, which probably could have been a whole podcast in itself if we'd recorded it. Um, but yeah, no, I've been really stoked to, I'm really excited to get you on the podcast to have a, a proper recorded chat. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think it's just so good to, um, yeah, just social media and online just allows us to kind of connect with like-minded um, therapists and physios and I just reckon it's yeah it's such a good medium for that and then it's even better when you can catch up in person and yeah as you said we can pretty much talk movement and strength training and all sorts of different topics all day so yeah it's good to, yeah good to have those like-minded practitioners uh, in physio oh mate it's so good yeah you're exactly right Instagram is just is that really good medium to facilitate those connections, but you can't really get a full, a, pr- a full proper dialogue going, um, on Instagram. So, um, where I usually like to start with these podcasts, obviously I, I know uh, a, a fair bit already about you. Um, but just for those who are listening and maybe don't know, um, you know, just, I guess about your story, what you do, why you do it, how you, how you like just your journey so far with, um, movement and physio and, and, um, anything pretty much yeah awesome cool so um yeah i grew up in uh victoria so by the coast in a town called ocean grove and um yeah i was always into sports so played heaps of uh footy or afl cricket tennis pretty much anything i could get my hands on so i was always just running and jumping and yeah just trying to um do anything that was athletic related um and then yeah when i sort of finished school I decided that physio is probably a good path to take um, to kind of combine that sort of, um, yeah, challenge 
knowledge or theoretically, but then have that ability to um, incorporate exercise and rehab and that movement side as well. So yeah, I went to went to La Trobe in two thousand and five or six, and then finished in two thousand nine. So I've been mm-hmm. a physio for twelve years, yeah, and right. then yeah, I think the other part of me that was sort of motivated was um, my uncle. He's an Australian trained physio, but he moved to the US and he really became a um, quite a highly skilled manual therapist over there. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's a clinic and in fourth year, I did an internship with him. And I remember just going there and just seeing how he operated and he had this massive gym um, and it was very much like patients would come in, he'd do some manual therapy and then they'd do their rehab program so there'd be lots of people in the gym all the time and it was all sort of open spaced um yeah really sort of rehab focused but he he taught uh maitland physio courses over there and Mm. i remember yeah back in 2009 i remember just going there and he was just the best physio i'd ever (laughs) ever seen (laughs) basically and he just had this amazing ability um to uh, use his hands for manual therapy and I remember I'd just done a really bad um, ankle sprain playing footy before I left here. And I actually went over there and I played um, AFL in the States, so for the Philadelphia Hawks, I think it was. Oh, right. There you go. Yeah, it was awesome. It was good fun. <laughs> uh, and I just remember, like, my ankle was still troubling me and he just said, oh, just come over here. And he did this, like, little mobe on my ankle. So basically, for anyone who doesn't know, just like a passive gentle sort of stretch and just immediately it felt a hundred percent and then I played the rest (laughs) and I was just kind of um really shocked and like interested how he had this ability to um use his hands to get these results and I just was so frustrated that I didn't have that and I was always more interested in sort of the strength and his gym stuff and movement and then, um, yeah, just a few other patients I'd see, someone coming in with um, just really limited shoulder range, so shoulder movement, and he'd just, I'd assess them and he'd come in and he'd just do like this little mobe on mobilisation, so sort of um, passive pressing down on a joint basically in his lower neck. And the person would just gain a lot more shoulder range and yeah, so from there, I finished uni and I just thought, oh, I'm just going to be like my uncle. Like, he's awesome. If I can get that um, skill, I'm just going to be the most valuable practitioner. And so then I started working in private practice and it was a bit um, not the greatest um, sort of setup where it was lots of um, passive treatment in my first job, lots of heat pack, tens machines, oh, yeah. moving yeah. between rooms. So I didn't really have a mentor um, and I just felt quite overwhelmed with um, trying to fix these people so quickly when they were coming in with chronic issues. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was starting to lose that like, oh, I don't know if, if these um, – I don't know if I have that skill to help people like um, my uncle does and then – so I was a bit disillusioned. I worked for 18 months. Then I went backpacking for a year. When I went backpacking, I was just certain that I wasn't going back to physio. And I was probably like 23, 24 at the time. 
came back after a year of traveling and then I actually got a job um, with the TAC. So the TAC is like um, Transport Accident Commission, so the compensable. Oh. Um, like, yeah, so basically, if anyone's been in a motor vehicle accident, they can get compensation for their medical treatment through the TAC. And so my job was um, basically sitting behind a computer and processing claims. And I just thought, oh, oh give it a shot. <laughs> and I lasted, lasted three weeks. And um, after three weeks, I said, no, physio is awesome. Like I'm on my feet, teaching movement still. I just need to carve out a path for me. I don't want to be in rooms. Um, I don't want to be putting heat packs on, rubbing people's backs, lying on their stomach. So then I um, just committed to doing as much. I realized that the reason I didn't like it, one reason is because I didn't feel confident. And then I just committed to doing PD. So I did so many p- weekend PD courses, so professional development, um, did every like spinal, Mackenzie, Maitland, Mulligan, Peter O'Sullivan, Explain Pain, all these must courses. And I remember... Um, doing like two, three in consecutive weekends and coming back to work and then realising that I hadn't even used anything from the first weekend. (laughs) And then I remember going to a mulligan, I think it was an upper limb course, and it was the same thing. It's all these really like zoomed in, hyper-focused like mobilisations with movement of the elbow. Yeah. And so... The Sunday um, night came in around and I just, again, realized that I was not going to use any of this. And I was still on this search for like, oh, I just need to find this perfect technique and I need to work out how to use my hands and how to, um, yeah, mobilize these joints. I just don't have it yet. And so, again, I sort of kept searching. I'd spent time at um, Melbourne Headache Center thinking I might like working on I don't know why, but uh, migraines and doing really specific mobilizations to C2 uh, and worked with an awesome, or just did some hours with an awesome physio there. And same thing, I just felt like he had it and I didn't. So it was this Mm. recurring sort of um, feeling that like I wasn't good enough yet. I couldn't feel what these guru physios um, felt. And then, yeah, sort of kept going down that path, kept working in private, did a little bit of sports work around Melbourne, not heaps, and then did a little bit of post-grad study, so a Musk um, grad cert, sort of the half of the Musk Masters. And with that, I think I got (coughs) – so basically the first half is you do um, the grad cert and then the second half is a Masters. So I finished the grad cert and then just realised that I just wasn't that interested in it. And so I got my grad cert but didn't go on to finish the master's. And then I was sort of a bit lost as to where to go because I was still in rooms, treating chronic issues, trying to use my hands, getting nowhere. And I think anyone who treats pain um, probably has this same realisation after seven or eight years that when you work, you want to see results for your effort and your like improvement and I'm always someone who like I want to put effort in and I want to get better and better but I wasn't seeing any better results so it's probably seven years in and I wasn't getting any better results than I was as a new grad 
And then mm. I was also really frustrated by seeing someone who came in with pain and then I would do all the right things like in terms of, you know, what the evidence would say, um, what I should have been doing for that issue and they just didn't get better. And I just felt like there's no way to predict how to treat people like that. And then I just couldn't see how this was sustainable because I wasn't getting results for effort. So I lost a bit of motivation with um, the PD courses and just sort of started working four days a week and put in sort of less effort. It just became like a cruisiest job. It was mm. kind of oldies. And then... Um, yeah, same sort of thing. I hit that realisation that this is a job for the next 30, 40 years. I need to try and find something that's like I was barely even able to finish the week because I just dis- – I didn't dislike it. I just disliked the lack of meaning in it. So you weren't mm. um, yeah, getting, getting results for the amount of effort, study, um, basically, yeah, that sort of whole – life after school had led to this point where I was just rubbing backs again. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that's tough. And, <laughs> yeah, and then so I just realised I had to change. So I looked around, enrolled in a master's in strength and conditioning because I was always really interested in um, just the way the states operated and some of the um, strength and conditioning guys over there who'd sort of managed to mix S&C and rehab. And then I did that through ECU just really part-time over four years. And through that, I just realized that I was actually should have been an S&C coach or I should have been an exercise physiologist because it just really fit my view of the world a lot better. And I loved that zoomed out approach where I could look at someone move or I could look at their function, I could look at them walking, I could look at them... um, yeah, getting up from a chair or bending and I could start to see where they might be having an issue rather than focusing on the pain. And then I started to focus on function and then things just got heaps more interesting for me and I started to delve into different areas. So, yeah, from biomechanics to learning about um, motor learning and then from there I just realised that movement was the thing that I was always interested in. So movement and function basically. Um, and then, yeah, so I finished the S&C masters and then started to use a lot more of that. And I think the thing about S&C, which if you do just a straight like physio degree without exercise science, you sort of miss the key concepts of exercise science. So it's the simplest things like, progressive overload, specific adaption, um, even that periodization to an extent. I think if you if you just go on those first principles, it can really guide your treatment straight away for most conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes in physio, what I miss, maybe not what all courses miss, but I miss that like we should make most decisions of how to treat someone on those first principles, which is, the body will adapt, um, the body's resilient, or the body's also, we can get hypersensitive if we fear avoid. And that's where, um, yeah, that sort of pain science knowledge helped as well. And I sort of mixed that with kind of the S&C side. 
and then yeah pretty much just started to treat based on those kind of simple principles and i'd still look at the physio evidence and you know how do you treat this but i'd look at it way way less Mm. um, as opposed to just how do i load this how do i unload this why is this sensitive why is it not Um, how's this person moving what are their movement habits what are their health habits Um, and i think that was another thing that really really helped me so when i did the SNC, I just realized how many gaps in knowledge I had as a physio and I thought I knew everything about it. Like I'd done every physio course on every joint in the body. <laughs> and I realized that for eight years, I'd only learned off physios and I hadn't learned off, you know, osteos, chiros, myos, um, SNC coaches, exercise scientists, yoga teachers. And then I just started to really realize that a lot of other people have these, have the knowledge that are our that gaps. And I started to really respect probably other professions a lot more because in my early days, I think, again, not bagging out physio too much, but I think we have this real obsession with like being so evidence-based, which is good, but it also makes us occasionally have this air of superiority about us and so then we might think oh i'm not learning off that profession it's not evidence-based but maybe it's yeah there's a lot of a lot that could be learned if we're more yeah i guess kind of humble about what we don't know and that's what i guess i tried to be and still try to be so try and sort of learn off now the people that get kind of that art of movement um, rather than like just the science-based definitions all the time and then um, yeah so I still kept sort of searching for the right job I worked for the defense force for about three years and that was awesome um, so I learned heaps about yeah just lower limb injury um, treated like some pilots and stuff with the air force in Newcastle um, and then worked with the School of Infantry out in like the Hunter Valley, New South Wales. So that was like 17, 18 year olds um, going through like recruit school. So that was a super interesting job. Saw a lot of like hip, femoral, neck, stress fractures and just shin splints. But the same sort of thing kept coming to me, this frustration of like, yeah, we're the physios and we wait for the injury mm-hmm. and then we treat it. So we're very reactive and it was the same thing. The same group had come through. They'd spend three months in Wagga Wagga. Then they'd come to us, um, Singleton. And a lot of them had already done their injury. So they'd been overloaded. They came to us week two and they've got a tibial stress fracture. And like, it was good because I'd really learned how to diagnose and treat it and the loading. But I was just frustrated because I just thought, oh, well, like, can't we prevent some of this? Like, is there not anything done? three months earlier and there was bits and pieces but um yeah I just couldn't be this person who just sat and waited reactively um and so I spent yeah like the next probably year so I left that job actually just sort of situationally but spent the next year locuming around Australia for the defense force so from Townsville to WA to um I didn't go to Darwin, I was going to go to Darwin, but yeah, all around Victoria and then, yeah, New South Wales. And I was sort of searching for a role there that would let me do prevention, so look at how to prevent some of this stuff. 
And yeah, I think after a while I just realized that that path was a bit hard because it's a bit hard to try and change <laughs> such a massive structure as defense. Is, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so I sort of eventually gave up on that idea, but I still knew that I was really interested in that yeah, movement, health and injury prevention. And so that's when I sort of realized that the job didn't particularly exist, that there's probably some high-level roles with um, maybe women's football in injury prevention or there's obviously S&C roles in, um, yeah, like AFL and pro sport, but I wasn't that interested in working with that. So then I just thought, oh, if I am really interested in injury prevention, physio, biomechanics, S&C combined, and it doesn't exist, I've probably got to try and create something that does <laughs> combine those. And that's when I sort of just started coming up with, um, yeah, different ideas and sort of developed mechanics of movement. <clears throat> and then I just started a Instagram page and that was just that exercise ideas. So it was as much a way of like learning for me and being sort of accountable um, and even trying to improve my own movement. So I'd obviously put up like different videos of me trying different movements and a lot of that was like okay how much can I improve my own movement how adaptable is my body because if I can figure that out if I can improve my own movement it'll give me a lot of confidence to send that message to someone else that they're resilient they're adaptable um, this is how you can change if you're persistent mm. and so that was kind of a secondary thing that helped um, yeah just with my motivation just kind of feeling although no one cared, but I felt a bit accountable to like, oh, I better put up um, some exercises or some different ideas. And then, yeah, that sort of got a few more followers with that and that obviously increased my motivation to keep going. And then, yeah, just the start of this year, I started working out of two gyms. So not not full-time at the moment, so I do a few different things, but... Yeah, what I do there is basically nearly all hands-off, so exercise-based, and I try and do sort of longer assessments, so um, just trying to really get to the bottom of what's going on with the person if they're injured or, or if they want to improve their performance. But, um, yeah, to me, I want to help them sort of long-term because it's not satisfying to me just getting that quick fix at all um, and I still see the, the value and benefit in manual therapy it's just that I don't want to do it <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's, fair just, enough. it's just yeah I feel like I can offer a lot more value by getting that um, improving someone's movement and function because that's long term and if I think if you improve someone's function then it's just got way more powerful um repercussions than if I focus on just getting them out of pain today or tomorrow and that's yeah sure. that's sort of my sort of my motivation um to keep pushing that and push the sort of exercise rehab role yeah man well you, you touched on heaps of good points there like I always love hearing people's story because especially people in this space and and 
people who are in our community, I suppose a lot of practitioners have had a very similar um, experience where they get out, they learn, well, they, they, sorry, they get in and they learn their profession and that, you know, we learn physio and some people learn Cairo and so on. And, and some people just stick with that profession. They only do physio courses and they just read all the physio research and they just stay in their physio bubble. But the people who actually broaden out and look at what other people are doing, and like you said, regardless of whether, you know, it's re- like research-based or not, like obviously we want to be evidence-based practitioners, but research evidence is only one pillar of evidence-based practice. So um I think people can get very caught up in the research evidence and then miss out on that broader perspective that really needs to be addressed as any health professional, regardless of what profession you are. If you're a health professional, you need to be across all aspects of health. And that doesn't mean you have to be prescribing everything, but you have to understand how the whole system works together. And I think, you know, that's what you were talking about with, with physio, like I was the same. I think we did one semester, like one six month block on exercise prescription, um, yeah. you know, where we'd go into the gym and things like that. But it, it really, it wasn't an education and movement. It was really, it was exercise focused. And then, yeah. you know, we learned about how the body works on a very granular level or the anatomy and physiology and everything, but not really, we, we didn't really learn and we certainly didn't practice as part of the course how to integrate the body in a, you know, in a functional way with movement and also how much of a, a role that other pillars of health play like sleep and nutrition and and all of these things. And, and so I think that's the story of the world right now or so far, especially the Western world is such a, an isolated specialized approach um where a lot of things get missed you know obviously there's a role for specialization but it's very easy to miss things when you've only got one lens and so you know just like you and and throughout your journey you've done a bunch of physio courses sounds like you've done a lot more than me um but uh but you know i've done a bunch of courses but i've also done you know a bunch of I guess, programs around movement and, and learning different uh, different systems of movement, you know, from animal flow to yeah, calisthenics to well. hand balancing to, you know, all of these things and realizing most people, it's all principles of movement mm-hmm. and it's just yeah. things that people, is standard standard fundamental things that people should be able to do and you could take your hands to anyone with any kind of problem but if they're not hitting some basic standards of movement then they're just going to keep coming back either with the same problem or with some other problem that's manifesting in a different way pretty much definitely i think um yeah you hit on a really good point so although i've done a lot of those courses i could have got just as much value or more in just doing like one movement course yeah, yeah. Every one of those courses broke the body down into each joint, and like it caused me to zoom in rather than zoom out. Yeah. Um, and if you go back to like, I think with when physios or chiros just learn off their own profession, it's very easy to get like that because your profession becomes your sort of like tribe almost. Your identity. Your your identity. Yeah. So it's like people identify with being a physio and they trust. They've got a circle of trust within it. Yeah. And um, 
once you sort of lose, so I don't, I mean, I still call myself a physio, but not really, like, I'm, <laughs> I kind of am, but just as much like a movement or like strength, strength conditioning coach, I guess. Um, and I think that what I realized was that you talk about evidence and we, yeah, physio is definitely evidence-based, but it's only looking at a very small um, portion of the evidence, mm-hmm. which is often they'll just be looking at the Journal of Physio or, or research done by the top physio researchers. And again, when I did the SNC, I was like, oh, how often do physios read the Journal of Strength and Conditioning or the Journal <laughs> of Biomechanics or the Journal of Motor Control or Motor Learning? And I was like, this is, there's so much here that we're missing by just being laser focused on physio evidence-based. Yeah. And that's when I just realized that you can't just read Physio Network or those type ones. It's really helpful. Um, but yeah, you need that broader perspective and just to, to get the, to have a well-rounded insight into how to treat a human, you need to understand, yeah, the psychology, the physics of movement, how the brain organizes movements so and motor mm. learning. You need to know social science, so how they interact socially, what's their social situation. And it is kind of the biopsychosocial approach. I think with that, um, it's an awesome approach. I think pain sometimes gets too, too much the center position, whereas say someone like Pete O'Sullivan, who sort of um, really pushed that approach, he kind of focuses just as much on the function, which is the movement and retraining movement and movement <coughs> patterns and watching someone's strategy and pattern. Um, whereas I think that's a bit missed and we just think we just have to educate someone on pain. Um, whereas what we're doing, I actually did a recent course on behaviour change um, and it talked about self-efficacy and basically the best way to improve someone's or one of the best ways to improve someone's health or change their behavior or even improve their chronic pain is to build self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. And there's three ways you can help someone as a practitioner. So the first one is mastery experiences. So it's when someone actually does the experience or the, the um, thing they thought they couldn't do. So they actually prove to themselves that, they can do the thing they thought that they couldn't. And you've got vicarious experience. So vicarious is um, when they see someone else perform the activity that they think they can't do. So they're living through someone. So that builds self-efficacy as well. And the third one is, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically knowledge. So it's education. So the practitioner telling someone um, that they're resilient or that they can quit smoking or whatever Mm -hmm. that builds self-efficacy too so basically what we do as practitioners is we mainly use the knowledge the education and it's way way less powerful so yeah research will show that um, mastery experiences is way way um, highest in terms of building self-efficacy and that's when someone actually proves to themselves that they can do the thing they didn't think they could do so say in the case of, um, say like low back pain and someone's fearful of lifting or flexing, 
basically we can educate them and tell them all we want. This is a lot of what pain science goes down, education, education, education. Um, and you can give them information, but it's very hard to for someone else to take that on. Um, it will improve their self-confidence, self-efficacy a little bit. But the main thing is when you just maybe even forget a little bit about the education, just get them out there and just say, okay, um, we're gonna, you're going to prove to yourself that you can lift that and just to do it and that builds self-efficacy. Because the first, I was kind of relating it back with a mate talking about rock climbing and um, like I've got a pretty bad fear of heights and one of my mates <laughs> is just like super adventurous and um, just a good sort of outdoor basically a leader and should be like an outdoor whatever leader person and uh, yeah. I was saying that like I went rock home once with him in Margaret River and he's I was saying that like it's very similar to if we're going rock climbing like he could beforehand tell me you know you're gonna it's gonna be fine you'll kill it yada yada like it's safe whatever but like that's not going to build my self-confidence and self-efficacy that much because that's his opinion it's not mine mm. but if you actually go out and you actually climb the rock wall and it's fine that's that mastery experience so that's the thing that builds self-efficacy because i proved to myself that i could do it um and that's why again way way why movement why getting someone in the gym or getting someone um doing actually doing the thing they think they can't do is a way better way of treating these issues than just sitting someone down and like the explaining is still important but it's got way way less power than the functional side mm. the movement side the building basically self-efficacy is what <laughs> what are most of us need yeah it's the biggest thing that matters and like you said the education is important but it has to be I feel like the education has to be within the context of actually doing the thing, you know, like you can give the education yes. almost as you go. Um, or if someone is, you know, really frightened, then obviously there's a role for just, you know, having a chat and, and exploring, yeah. you know, where these beliefs are coming from and, and so Definitely. on. But, oh, for sure. you know, it's all very contextual, but at the end of the day, and it, it comes with, you know, pain education or manual therapy or, um, whatever therapy you like, uh, it like pretty much what you're getting at and what we try to preach is that it all comes back down to movement and function because, you know, people, obviously people don't want to be in pain, but for the most part, they don't want to be in pain because they want to be able to do something functionally or movement wise yes. that the yes. pain is stopping them from doing. And so, yeah, you, you might get a change in pain by pressing on some joints and, and that can be helpful in the right context and with the right education around that. But at the end of the day, if they're not moving and if they're not yeah, having that mastery experience or at least that feeling of progress in movement and especially in movements that they feel restricted in or that are very relevant to them, then they're just going to be not going well, going around in circles or just sort of taking one step forward and one step back Definitely. and and not really, sorry. yeah. No, you go. Uh, I think that's super important. One thing I've really realized with treating people is like really getting to the bottom of what motivates this person to get by mm. in the rehab. 
So it's like everyone wants to do something, like whether it's they want to be out of fish or garden or run a marathon. And it's like if you can get someone focusing a little bit away from the pain and focusing on the thing that the pain is stopping them from, for me then it's quite easy to work backwards from there and go, okay, this is why we're doing, you know, a half squat today because you tell me that gardening or getting down the ground with your grandkids is the most important thing to you in the world and I'm going to tailor your rehab around getting down the ground with your grandkids. And so that's why today you're doing a half squat and then like I think that gets buy-in as well because you're taking attention hopefully away from pain but you're also telling someone exactly why you're doing this exercise because people don't care if they get stronger quads or if they get stronger glutes (laughs) or if they increase their knee flexion range they're outcome measures that we care about they just care about what's that going to allow me to do in the world that I care about Um, and I think finding that and digging like with a patient is super important to try and get that out and get buy-in and then you kind of I guess sort of hopefully won someone over because you're both working towards their goal, not like my goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And often often people haven't really even thought of it that much. Like sometimes people are like, oh, the pain has stopped me from doing this. But sometimes you're like, so what do you actually want to be able to to do? And they're like, oh, well, I kind of just want the pain gone. And it's like, well, yeah. So And it's delving deeper and really listening to what they're saying and and reiterating it back to them does build that like you said that that feeling of teamwork and and i think that Mm. it would be described in the research as therapeutic alliance and you know it's been shown that therapeutic alliance is one of the most important factors for getting a good outcome uh, regardless of what the the intervention is and if you can have that therapeutic alliance which just means a good relationship a good connection with your patient then you're going to get a lot more done uh, and they're much more likely to do things at home. And because, yeah, you could get, I think a lot of people fall into this trap of, oh, I'm feeling tired or in pain again. So I go and see my practitioner. They sort me out, which, you know, I feel good again for a week or two. And then I go back to that practitioner. And even if the practitioner gives them exercises to do at home, then if they haven't got that right, therapeutic alliance and they haven't really delved into the why they should be doing the exercises if it's just something that they've been told to do because it's good um, but they know that they get the pain fix from the the therapist's hands or whatever then they're like oh it's all right like yeah I'll do the exercises and then life gets in the way but if it's that Mm. deeper meaning of like I know exactly why I need to do this exercise it makes Mm. a lot of sense for what I want to do um and especially if you can make it fun, that's my, you know, my big area of interest. Um, yes, then, then yeah, you're much more likely to get a proper, um, a proper outcome. And also I think, you know, obviously it's important for us as physios, um, but also to get across to the client that broader view of their movement health. And it's not just about this one body part. It's not just about this one function either. It's about the fact that, you know we are we are living out of alignment with our DNA in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways, and you know it's not just about doing certain exercises to improve improve one function, but it's about looking at what the human body 
should be doing as a whole, you know, in terms of like you and I have talked about movement nutrition and we've done a podcast or Mac and I did a podcast on movement nutrition and yeah, improving not just the quantity and not just the quality, but also the variability and doing more of different things and, and even expanding the range. Like I think it's really good to us, you know, to understand what someone wants to do functionally but also to expand their range of what they think is possible. Like some people just don't yes. think it's possible. Like, oh, I can't, I would never be able to run. So, you know, I just yeah. want to be able to squat, but it's like, well, are you sure you'd never be able to run? Or is that just yeah. something that you've been told or, or you know, exactly. why do you, yeah. you know, expanding that I range think, of what's possible. I think, yeah, you made some really good points. I think definitely that question, what do you want to be able to do, really opens someone's mind, which mm. is, Often you'll hear them say, oh, I'd love to get back to tennis, but, and then you just kind of, you leave space for them to answer and you go, okay, so, but what? And they say, (laughs) but I couldn't. And then like asking a second question, they're like, oh, why not? And then it gets them thinking. And I think even just that questioning opens the possibility in their mind that like you as hopefully a bit of an expert are not writing that off for them. Because I think mm. most practice, not most, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to bag out other yeah. practitioners at all, but um, I think what can be common is that we are often telling people what they can't and shouldn't be doing. And if you can be someone who maybe practices movement enough yourself to know how adaptable you can be or can become, then like you genuinely believe in your question when you say, oh, why not? Like, I think we can get you there if we work backwards. Like, we can get, as long as you're willing to be patient and um, as long as we can, yeah, slowly get there, we can get you back to that. And I think that um, instills a bit of confidence as well. Sometimes, sometimes you get the, like, you know, kind of roll of the eyes or the um, yeah. cross arms <laughs> across the chest. Um, but, yeah, sometimes it just opens up this, like, oh, so potentially I could do that thing that I used to love to do. Um, but yeah, I think that only comes when as a practitioner you understand how far you can take movement or how far you can take the body in terms of how it just will keep adapting to what you ask it to do. hundred um, yeah. percent. I think, I think that that was something I also wanted to touch on um, about your story is that just the more you the more you practice on yourself, like I, I, like you said, you could have done, you know, eight, 10, 15 physio courses, but probably got the similar amount of value from just actually learning how to move or applying a movement system to yourself. And I, I found that so, so huge for me is just, well, first of all, having injuries and then trying movements, you know, getting, you know, figuring out what my body does and doesn't like and why. And so being becoming your own experiment. And that's what actually gives you, like you say, the confidence to say to someone, I think we can get you there. Whereas if you've yes. never experienced it yourself and if you've never experienced it yourself and you practice in a certain way, you've probably haven't experienced it with many um, clients. You can't really confidently say, I think we can get you there. And yeah. you could try and say that anyway, you could try and, I guess, you know, fake it and say oh yeah I think we can get you there but if you don't really believe it then it's not going to come across well to the patient and you're going to end up sort of 
just not giving them the confidence. But if you, if you have got all of that experience of like, I've applied all of these principles to myself, I know they work, I don't know why, um, the same thing can be applied to you. You're a resilient and adaptable human just like me. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's, yeah, I think it's all about that confidence. And I think, again, there's yeah. therapeutic alliance, but also therapist confidence makes a huge difference in the, in the outcome. Yeah. And, I, and I think... I think you, sorry, sorry. That's all good. Now, I was just going to say the the it's always hard on Zoom because of, of the yeah. lag, um, but the story about your uncle being so confident and good with his manual skills, probably his just sheer confidence and belief in his skills would create such a, so much of a better outcome for people. Whereas you're like, Oh, one day I'll get there. But you, you know that, Oh, my skills aren't good enough. Yeah. And I think you just reached the conclusion before me, basically like, (laughs) and so basically all those courses, all I was searching for was confidence. Like I just wanted to get confident in what I was doing and I didn't find it. Um, but as you said, I could have just done earlier what you did and experiment on yourself because you've proven to yourself and that gives you true confidence. Yeah. So that's where I kind of became a more confident practitioner from literally experience, not from knowledge, um, the knowledge along the way with it, but I had to live it as well. And with my uncle, yeah, you're right. Like he walks around and he's just so confident. He's got this air, air of like, he just knows what he's doing. And like, I respected him a lot for that and his patients did too. Um, and he genuinely is a very good manual practitioner, but it's the whole package. It's everything. Yeah. They feel safe. They feel like they can relax. They put their trust in, the, in him. He's, he's also very good at the rehab side too, so he knows when to use both. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, every, it's everything with him. Like he's not you know, there and not speaking and just pressing on a neck and (laughs) he's coming in with, he's super relaxed. He knows what he's doing. He teaches, you know, internationally and people know that. Um, It's, there's so much that goes into it. Hey, so much. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think there was even, even a study. uh, I can't remember the exact details, but they compared the outcomes of patients who walked into a um, reception room that had, it looked really fancy and had a good view and had a, you know, I think even an attractive receptionist or something like that um, versus the outcomes of a, of a completely different reception room, like in the, on the opposite end. And even that stuff makes a huge difference to patients pain outcome. Like, yeah, how important yes. or successful they think the practitioner is and how well the practitioner mm. relates to them. And there's just so much that goes into pain that mm. you really can't, I mean, you can, account for it to a degree and you can try your best to understand it all but pain is such a multifactorial experience that we can't really rely on it as a as a as an outcome measure but you can rely on movement and function and usually improving movement and function is what gets people's pain away for the most part when it's if it's musculoskeletal pain um and i suppose you know your your Instagram and a big part of your interest I know is mechanics of movement. Obviously the Instagram is mechanics of movement and you've done a fair bit of, um, I guess, looking into biomechanics and I've just actually done your biomechanics of running presentation, which I really liked, but I thought we could chat a bit about biomechanics and how you see that applying to, to rehab and, and performance and, and just, yeah, how you've applied that yourself. 
in the yeah, context sure. of everything else that we've just talked about in terms of pain and everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> That's a big so question. Biomechanics, <laughs> yeah. It's just, um, it's the same thing. So like if you think, I think of, it's cliche, but the art and science of movement. So it's like there's always that art side, which is the adapting system and the way we self-organize and motor learning movement variability um, and basically coordination and that that real art of movement that can't be measured um, but then we still deal with the forces of earth yeah. gravity with every step so you still i still think you need to know about force and about um, joint movement and leverage and all these they're still first principles so it's just physics so it would yeah. be like if i didn't understand biomechanics or have some understanding of it it'd be like me trying to live in a world that disregards physics and so i can understand biology and um, evolutionary biology why the body adapted to the way it is i can understand the psychology of movement um, and yeah that more sort of as i said movement learning how the brain um, produces complex movements but I still need the knowledge of physics as well so if you don't have that you're just relying on you know two or three systems or two or three groups of principles to treat someone but you're missing out on that other one or you're disregarding it so yeah. don't like I think some people look at biomechanics and they look at someone who just uses those principles so they're just relying on physics and they're forgetting about the psychology and the biology and the social context um but i think to have that again well-rounded approach you need to understand all areas um and to me yeah like understanding kinetics and um, as I said, leverage and moment arms and torque um, is still super important. And it's not important for everyone. It depends on your caseload. Um, but you need to, I think, have some understanding of how someone's even movement pattern will load a particular area. And that's where, like in terms of, if you look at biomechanics being, so kinematics is basically motion. So that's movement. So that's the things we can't really measure. That's, you know, how much does the knee bend when we swing it through in running or um, how much do we flex the shoulder during a swimming stroke? And then you've got kinetics. So kinetics is the forces that impact on the body. So again, mm -hmm. gravity and the ground reaction force. Um, so, yeah, I think just having that understanding of that helps me know when to use it and when not to yeah but it does if i'm if i'm looking at say someone's squat pattern and they've got knee pain i want to know how their movement pattern is loading their knee and if we can tweak it change it to shift load around and i think an understanding of yeah biomechanics can help that as well um so, yeah, as I said, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's definitely something that in rehab, in sport, in performance, it becomes more important the more you go towards that performance spectrum. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, like, I guess what you're getting at is it's a, it's another tool in the toolkit that can be drawn upon to solve problems. Cause you know, if you're a physio or any kind of health professional, really you're in, in the business of problem solving and figuring out someone's come to you with an issue and you want to figure out what that is. And like you said before, I think preventative things would be much better to roll out to the whole population so that people aren't in this sort of reactive mindset where I only go to someone if I've got an issue. Um, yeah. But that's probably a whole other a whole other topic in itself. But yeah, yeah you, you know, sorry, go on. Uh, I think <laughs> biomechanics, like <laughs> sometimes it's a lot different to what we think it is. So like mm. biomechanics helps me to understand why in um in say walking compared to running why we keep a straight leg through stance phase and if i don't understand biomechanics i don't understand what a bent knee in the stance phase of running is doing to my quads um, and is doing to my knee joint and is doing to the and is is gonna um cause this in this kind of cascade of reactions that increases load through the knee and quad and increases the amount of energy consumption um so it just helps me understand movement and like yeah how the body chooses a strategy based on biomechanical principles that either is for efficiency or um takes yeah takes load off a joint as well no it does because it if you have that understanding of ways to increase efficiency and ways to load and unload areas then it's that's how you guide someone through that process of mastery and self-efficacy that we talked about before like if they're moving in a certain way and you have no idea how to change that movement or how to cue a change and for what reason you know, an easy example is someone's like excessively anteriorly tilting, then they're not, they're probably not breathing properly and they're probably not activating their core properly. And if you change that often, that can, that can make a difference to someone's experience of that movement, whether it's pain or discomfort or range of motion. And yeah. then that, that person wouldn't have known that. In fact, I was that person. I thought my core was good. I thought my core was strong. And it turns out I was really anteriorly tilting with squats and that was contributing to my chronic knee pain. And I wouldn't have known that unless I'd had someone look at that. And, you know, obviously my exercise physiologist, uh, who's Kelly Mann, big shout out. She, she knows about biomechanics and she's like, okay, let's tweak this. How does that feel? I was like, oh, that feels better. And it gives you that, that experience of like, oh, I can change my movement to change my symptoms or to, you know, influence how I feel in that movement. And then it's like, oh, well, what else could I change? What else could I, you know, load here or do here? And then it all sort of builds that picture of, of that picture and that feeling of confidence of I can, I can do something here. I'm in control. I mean, I have some level of control. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I use it in like, say I'm looking at someone's walking as well. And I'll see maybe just like a big Trend Allenberg. So basically Trend Allenberg is when, when we're walking in single leg stance, um, if the if the stance leg hip muscles aren't strong enough, we get a big drop of the pelvis. And again, it might not be painful. We might not want to fix it. But I still want to know why someone's body chooses that strategy. And biomechanics helps me understand that 
Well, by dropping the pelvis, you're just moving the center of mass over that stance leg. So it's trying to make it easier for the hip muscles on the stance leg um, to work. So just understanding why, why someone's choosing, brain has chosen a strategy, so which is more that kind of movement learning, brain um, self-organized decision, but why they did that from a biomechanical perspective as well. So why did that actually unload the knee joint because the quad was weak? Or why did they mm. shift weight across and drop the pelvis because it shifted the center of mass across and, and made it easier, a smaller moment arm for the like, glute hip abductors? And so it's almost like it just gives me more insight into why someone's choosing a strategy um, so I can then say, okay, do we want to change this or don't we? Is this adaptive? Is it maladaptive? Yeah. Um, that sort of thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and knowing why, why they've probably compensated in that way because the body is a master compensator and almost everyone has some level of compensation going on in their body. Um, but knowing why and, and what factors to address, you know, say for in that example, it's like, okay, well, um, it's because of, well, in any example, it's because of X, Y, Z that they're most likely compensating in that way. So if we strength, you know, if we specifically strengthen this muscle or, you know, this range of motion or increase this range of motion or increase the, the, um, load tolerance of this tendon, then their body, cause we, we know that bodies, human bodies, uh, can self-organize like they they yes. have all of these yes. fundamental movement patterns ingrained within them but they will compensate if there's areas of weakness or stiffness or just areas that the brain doesn't feel confident um, or safe to move into and so if we know why that is then it gives us a better toolkit as to to figure out how to to reverse that if we want to 100 percent. Yeah, yeah the body always follows a path of least resistance so like Again, just take someone, so my old man um, has no hip extension range, so needs a um, hip replacement. So with every step on that side, his body will find a way, so it'll still find a way to get his leg behind him because it's very hard to walk if you can't get your leg behind you because you can't use your calf for push-off. Yeah. So with every step, instead of hip extension, he'll rotate his pelvis to increase the effective like, step length. Yeah. Um, and like... I guess I could look at him and say, oh, you're limping, but I can't see why. I don't know what's going on here. But I think that, like, that's more kinematics, but understanding, okay, where are you not getting motion from? Okay, you've got no hip extension. And what's that causing further up the chain? Okay, so you have to rotate your pelvis with every single step. Um, And that's where, like... Again, the more you look at movement, you probably notice it too. Like you'll start to see patterns. Um, and when you see those patterns, it's not you're not always going to try and intervene and change it like that pelvic drop. But I still want to know what that person's kind of pattern is so that if they do end up overloading an area or... Um, say for him, if he is rotating with every step, he's probably getting a lot of lumbar spine rotation all the time. So he's going to probably be quite jammed up through that left um, lumbar spine or facet joint. So like, therefore, 
that's where like I think we do sometimes want to intervene with improving movement. Oh, we definitely definitely want to improve <laughs> that. Um, but if we don't know what we're looking for, if we don't have a good understanding of kinematics and what should be happening with walking or with running, then we don't know um, when someone's movement pattern, I guess, is maladaptive or potentially if he ends up with, you know, really bad low back pain, it may not be that he just needs to decrease his stress and he needs to sleep better. He probably does. But he's probably also got an issue functionally in that hip that needs to be restored. So it's like finding a balance between sometimes literally stuff is biomechanical. Like yeah, yeah. there's a clear biomechanical cause to the pain. Um, not saying there's not other factors, but it's just knowing when, and I think a lot of new grads who completely disregard biomechanics and don't understand and look at movement, um, they don't know when, when to use that knowledge and when to say this is really biomechanical because some stuff, as I said, is some stuff is completely not and it's like a spectrum. Mm. So some people, you go down a biomechanical path and it's, it's a disaster. Because they get fixated on that. Um, But other people, you go down a biopsychosocial path and it's a disaster because all that stuff is that there's literally a joint that's causing massive issues here up the kinetic chain. And we didn't even look at them walk or we didn't look at them go downstairs or we didn't look at them squat. Mm. So we we missed that like time when we did need to zoom in. And then again, sometimes we just need to sit back and zoom completely out and say, I don't care about that pelvic drop. I don't care about your stiffness in your ankle. You're just stressed. You're overweight. You know, you don't move. (laughs) And there's, yeah, there's so many factors that come into it. And if you, I think it's important not to, and, and obviously, like you said, this gets more and more contextual, like the, the greater you go in terms of performance, like the need for performance and everything, the more granular you generally have to get with biomechanics. But just for your average person, obviously it's important to know how their biomechanics might be affecting the way they're moving and compensating and and the symptoms that they're getting. But also just not to, if someone's just moving, if they're just trying to improve their daily movements, you don't have to analyze them to the nth degree it's just like well this is generally what you need to be doing so let's strengthen in that range and if you know and give them the like i said before give them the toolkit as well to to self-regulate because again you you people can get um in the similar way people can get dependent on manual therapy people can get dependent on you know, someone telling them exactly how to move at all times. Oh, exactly. and, yeah. and, and you never want to do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's like tune into your body. Don't, you know, these are the things, these are the different variables you can play with. Um, tune yeah. into your body and, be, you know, be your own self-experiment and, you know, yeah. Yeah. and listen to the signals that you're getting. And then that's, yeah, like we've been talking about the whole time, it's a lot more empowering approach that actually gives someone that self-efficacy. And I think with like, so if you go back to that pelvic drop, say, and say like I'm looking at someone and I see that pelvic drop in walking, I'm not mentioning that to them. Like I would yeah, never tell them. Yeah. And my treatment might be, okay, do I want to fix this? Don't I? It's probably not an issue. But, you know, it's always better to have good glute med function. 
Maybe yeah. you just get them to stand on a beam. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be because they will self-organize to the point there that they won't drop their hip in that position because if you do, you fall off. So their body will find a way. So that's yeah, what it's like. Yeah, are we exactly. dealing with weak hip abductors that we need to strengthen glute med or are we just dealing with a body that doesn't know how to keep a pelvis level? And yeah. We need to put it in an environment where keeping a pelvis level is the only option. Yes. We're getting immediate feedback about, did I keep my pelvis level? That's what we're looking at. But all they're thinking of is, did I fall off the beam? Yeah. Um, and and, so and you don't the, have to cue them anymore. You don't have to cue. No, okay, no lift your cue. pelvis. It's it's the beam tells them, okay, you've, you didn't do it properly. And the brain's like, oh, okay, that's another data set. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. And then they yes. get it. And then when they do get it, they're like, oh, look, I'm standing on the beam. And it's like a, a wave of, you know, successful emotions rather than like, yep. oh, I guess I can kind of feel the glute working in that clamshell now. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. So like that's where I'll use a lot of rehab with like, I know what I want them to get, um, but I'm not going to cue it. I'm just going to put them yeah. in an environment or like a task or a um, – introduce constraints yeah. to get them to self-organize their body so to organize their body in space to create that desired thing that i want so if yeah. i want more you know knee flexion in swing or if i want them to stop dropping their hip or pelvis or if i want to hinge at the hip i'm gonna to have to create something where they're not even thinking about that but the problem of giving them forces them into a solution that that is what um yeah that's what occurs almost yeah sense. yeah yeah no it makes a lot of sense and that's that is kind of like the play-based approach is you change some variables and you force the brain to solve the problem of you know overcoming these constraints and moving in a way that it's almost like forcing a compensation that you want <laughs> or like you know yes, someone's moving yeah. in a certain pattern and they don't have for, for whatever reason, their brain doesn't have access to the to the way you sort of quote unquote want them to move or to a different way of moving. And so they're constantly defaulting into this one movement pattern. And then you add a constraint and then the brain's like, oh, okay, what do I do here? So for example, yeah. standing on a beam. Oh, this is a completely different surface. It's much more narrow. It's a little bit off the ground. Okay, what do I need to do to stabilize here? Um, and then... Yeah, that that play-based approach, which everyone kind of scoffs at play. Well, not everyone. It's definitely becoming more, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, more normalized now. But in general, like everyone's so work-focused, like, oh, we just got to strengthen that glute. We just got to um, strengthen whatever or mobilize that joint. And it's like, yeah, but how's that integrating? And the only way to integrate it really is, I feel like through that play-based approach and exploring yeah, and getting so creative. Play is learning. Play yeah. is learning. And, yeah. Yeah. And so if you think about like move, this is how I think of movement variability. So say you've got a pebble on the ground and you want to pick it up. There's a thousand different ways you could pick it up. Like you could squat, you can lunge, you can side flex down, you can extend pick it up, with, pick, pick it up, up with your foot. <laughs> yeah, figure it out with your foot, do whatever you want. But if we change that to a boulder, how many options do you have? So the first yeah. one you've got, say, 100 solutions. So all your brain cares about is solving movement problems. And the problem it sees when you're picking up a pebble is just how do I get this rock from here 
up to waist level. That's all your brain wants to do. There's heaps of options, there's heaps of solutions. But if you change that to a boulder, you've still got the same problem, get this rock from here to here, mm. but your brain's got way less solutions. So you can't pick it up with your foot anymore. You yeah. can't side flex. You can't probably extend back and pick it up. You've probably got to squat a hinge or a bend, bend the mm. back. Mm-hmm. And so this is where like the flexion of the spine stuff's a bit, it's missing a bit of the picture because if someone's only solution is flex the back, you've got one of three. And so you really need to open up variability and teach them literally how to lift with the straight back and how to squat. But if someone only knows how to hinge and doesn't know how to flex, they've only got one or two solutions to a problem where you need three or four. And so that's where you want to teach them how to flex the back because more solutions is better than less. Um, And so if you come back to like, constraints so say the person doesn't have a hinge pattern for whatever reason they've forgotten it's dormant the life they live doesn't ever require them to do it it's really powerful to introduce that pattern you don't you do kind of teach it but you just want them to learn it so then i might depending on their skill this is where constraints come into it so if they're a really skilled learner you can probably just show them and they'll be able to do it straight away but if their movement skill is poor you need to introduce constraints into the environment so the movement you want them to produce is the only solution so that's where a constraint for me on a hinge might be okay i'm going to block the knee i'm going to use a dowel on the back and get them to hinge and again all i'm saying is i just want you to bend forward yeah but the pattern that they don't have yet is the only one that they can use and then as the skill is learned so that's called like restricting the degrees of freedom so they've only got the hips the only degree of freedom there because we've taken out the knee's still moving but it's not really the shin the shank i guess yeah is fixed the trunk's pretty fixed so then as skill is learned they will you release degrees of freedom and they should still be able to control it and you've just you've just opened that pattern so that's variability because that same person goes to that boulder and previously they only had a back bend pattern and maybe they didn't have a squat or a hinge and you've given the brain access now this is where if they've learnt the skill it should carry over if you've given them good cues um, they should now have three solutions to something that they only had one to yeah um and yeah i think they're like this is movement in itself. Like when we learn a new skill in the initial stages, we reduce degrees of freedom. So I've just been trying to learn to surf lately and I, I just watch <laughs> with movement. And I noticed that the beginners, when they start, their knees are straight, they're upright, they don't move at the ankle. And so what we do there is we restrict our degrees of freedom and we basically move block-like. And then as we improve our skill, um, as we develop that skill, we release degrees of freedom. So you'll see the knees bend, you see the ankles start to move, you'll see the pelvis start to twist, the trunk will start to twist. And then if you've got a professional surfer, 
they've got the most movement variability because with every movement they actually get maximum amount of joints so they'll start moving at the scap they'll be mm. twisting the trunk they'll be mm. twisting the cervical spine and you see that in every single skill so if you take a um someone learned to kick a footy initially they're going to be have a splint light leg it's yeah gonna, they're gonna have the arms out straight <laughs> and they're just gonna swing through so they're restricting degrees of freedom because the brain doesn't know how to um how to move more joints and segments at once and then as they get better an, an indication that they're learning the skill is they'll start to bend the knee so they've increased degrees of freedom at the knee they'll start to get dorsiflexion and plantar flexion they'll start to bend the elbows they'll start to lean the trunk a bit Mm-hmm. And so the again increasing movement variability because there's way more degrees of freedom in their system now, um, and that's where if you look at top, I think you've read um, playing with movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of my faves. Um, yeah, it's awesome. But I love the bit about like professionals, so the elite, so say like a Tiger Woods. I don't know if he's still elite or not. Don't know much about golf, <laughs> but they noticed that. Um, the professionals or the elites have more degrees of, sorry, more movement variability than like sub-elites. Yeah. And it seems kind of counterintuitive, but basically they just adapt to the environment and the conditions far better. So each shot in terms of like what they do with their wrist, their elbow, their scalp, their um, yeah, thoracic spine is slightly different. It's slightly more variable, mm. whereas sub-elites mm. move very similar each time. But the elites, um, the like where they hit the ball will be much, much more similar compared to the sub-elites. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, no, for sure. It's It's basically just adaptability to the context and the environment. And the more you've practiced and the more you've played... Um, and you know, obviously there's some, I guess, inherent levels, well, maybe debatable, but you know, the more talent you've got, the more you've practiced and the more you've played, um, and experimented, the more you're going to be able to adapt to the right circumstance. And, um, and that's why they perform so well, because they're not stuck in this certain pattern of, I have to swing the golf club like this, or I have to kick the footy like this. It's like, Oh, what if I kick it like this? Oh, okay. That happened. What if I kick it like this? And then it's, you know, it's that play-based experimental approach that actually gets people good. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing I'm reading a book called the language of coaching, um, by Winkleman. And um, basically what we, like, what's so coming out consistently in the research is the importance, like if we're teaching movement or someone's learning it, is the importance of like an external cue. So say on the beam, um, if you told someone, okay, I want you to grip with your toes, what they'll actually do is they will become way more rigid and mm-hmm. they will again constrict those degrees of freedom. So they'll probably like lock the knee joint, lock the ankle. And if they're trying to learn, it's going to be detrimental to them learning um, because the brain doesn't learn movement like that. The brain, you need to just give it a problem. And so, one example they give in this is like when um, someone's playing darts, if you tell them that 
I want you to focus on the trajectory of the dart versus I want you to bend and extend your elbow. So the mm. second cue is internally focused. So someone focuses on the body, whereas the first one's more problem or goal focused. So the second, um, when you give someone the internal cue to think about the elbow, again, their movement will be much um, poorer quality and yeah. the result will be much poorer quality than someone that's focus on the trajectory um yeah that just shows up time and time again mm, that mm. we don't do well and it's even when you think about um like athletes so choking in sport is often due to the person starting to think about the internally about the movement rather than the goal of the movement and so they'll start to lack freeze up literally their motor system because they're thinking about movement. Movement's not really designed to be consciously thought of. Yeah. And sometimes I give this example of like, I'm a shocking dancer, but on the, <laughs> like on the dance floor, you can see someone who's self-conscious, like literally <laughs> conscious of the self, like they're thinking yeah. about their movement because they're rigid and they're not free and flowing. Whereas the person that's not thinking is free to move because there's no thought like movement doesn't need you don't need to think yeah you don't think about the movement you just feel it when you especially when you're dancing you just feel what's happening with the music and your body moves accordingly in whatever ranges of motion you've got access to and it feels awesome and then it feels terrible to be dancing self-consciously it's like oh <laughs> what am i doing here <laughs> done that many times <laughs> everyone's <laughs> looking at me and i feel like an idiot and then you get and off you the do dance floor like an idiot because yeah like, your body doesn't want to think about shit. It just wants to like, oh, that stuff, sorry. Um, it just wants to like get something done and it wants to yeah. be like free and flowing and coordinated. And that's where we actually learn. Um, and that's where, yeah, you go back to play again because play is not, you're not thinking about stuff, but you're learning trial and error. Yeah. Uh, and you're just and you're immersed in the activity. Yeah. And you're feedback. Yeah. And feedback's massive. So if you're yeah. not getting much feedback from your um, the task at hand about was it not not just was it successful, but um, yeah, did, did we sort of achieve the goal of the movement? Then you're probably not going to learn the movement. But if, if you're getting feedback, and feedback can just be, did I fall off the beam? yeah or um did, did I, I drop the hacky sack <laughs> did i drop the hacky yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah because you're gonna then readjust yeah. your strategy because you're like oh that didn't work so or did i fall yeah. off the surfboard um yeah so got yeah exactly immediate feedback okay and you you don't even think this consciously but your body's then working out okay that didn't work how do we adjust our movement, this, this, that, Yeah. Um, to make sure that next time, because we know what the goal is. The goal is to stand up and not fall off the board. The goal is mm. to hit your hacky sack with your foot. Um, so it's just that, yeah, immediate feedback massively yeah. accelerates learning. Yeah. Which provides the data. It's yeah, people can sort of get frustrated and like, oh, like I keep failing at this. I keep falling off the beam, or I keep dropping the hacky, or whatever. But your brain is just getting more and more data about what does and doesn't work in certain contexts, and then it puts all that together, and then 
suddenly or not so suddenly you get this, oh, I just did it. Like, wow, awesome. And then, and then now I can move on to another more complex problem. And that's actually the best way to learn. And it also is sort of feels the best in terms of, yeah, yeah. like, like we said, like the dancing example, it's, it just feels good to be able to move like that and to, to push through challenge. Like, yeah, it might be, yeah. it might be challenging and frustrating, but when you push through and get it, it's like the best feeling. Exactly. And I think the, the key is as well, exactly what you're saying and making sure that the problem, so the problem needs to be still achievable. So if you took me yeah. out surfing at Bells Beach where it's massive, it's just going to be too challenging and the failing is not going to um, mm, mm-hmm. give me enough enough kind of um, feedback. Like it's going to be it's going to decrease my confidence. But also if you took me down where the surf was, you know, ankle high or the waves are ankle <laughs> high and just catching in, that's not challenging enough for learning either. So yeah. like we need to find for ourselves or for like our clients, whatever, that right amount of challenge where it's like stimulating enough that they can get it with a lot of concentrated like effort but it's not too hard or too easy, basically. Yeah, yeah, that Goldilocks zone between. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's so important, and um, and then that's that's the value of having a guide to help people find that Goldilocks zone. Because if people are left to their own devices, often it can be like they're just not starting at the right progression or they're just not knowing how to progress once they've mastered a certain thing and then it falls off the wayside. But if that, if you have someone or some program or some kind of guidance to help you go from, to stay in that Goldilocks zone consistently over time, then that's where the really, like the real magic happens. Yeah. And I think if I look at like someone like you, for instance, and I see you balance on the beam and I'm like, Oh shit. Like, that's way too intense. I could never do that. But if you had, and this is kind of why I've tried to video stuff along the way, if I saw footage of you two years ago or six months ago and you were where I was now, mm. that gives me sort of more confidence too because I'm like, oh, James is like, he's awesome at it, but he wasn't. But now yeah, he is. Yeah, and yeah. so it's like, okay, so I don't You could do that if you, if you scroll through my Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, when I first started, mind you, I, I did pick it up very quickly um, because I just played a heap on it. Um, but, you know, and I wasn't filming for most of that time that I was picking it up. But certainly my skills have progressed a lot on it. Um, yeah. But uh, now do I'm going to do that. Do I'm going to look through my yeah. Instagram. Do you get people who um, kind of come to you and say like, oh, you're just naturally good at that or like... Uh, I think some people see me on it and yeah, and just think that I have had a natural talent for it or something or like, whoa, that's amazing, but I could never do that. But it is, I really do see it as a, a big expression. It's like a dance. Honestly, the beam is like a dance and it's an expression of what ranges of motion you have control over and how well you can dynamically integrate all these different body parts to remain stable and you know especially if you chuck some music on it's like a dance um but it's it's an indication like there's certain things that i do on the beam that look really crazy but it's because i can do i can perform that skill on the ground like a sissy squat or like a back bridge or something like that which means i can get into this funky position on the beam where it's like whoa how did he save that but the only reason i could do it was because 
had access to that range of motion. I already was strong in that range of motion. And so it's sort of, you know, just practicing on the beam probably won't get you to my level on the beam, but doing beam plus strength work, plus groundwork, plus, you know, breathing and X, Y, Z, then that's will allow you to express things on the beam. And that obviously goes for everything, um, any kind of skill. Exactly. And, um, I think that's a thing. People sometimes want to look at someone who's, you know, world-class at balancing on the beam <laughs> and, uh, they want to just write it off as like, ah, oh, he's just naturally good at that. Yeah. But like, it lets you off the hook if you think like that. Yeah. So when I was watching, yeah. um, you know, that Alex Honnold mm. solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, obviously he has some unbelievable, um, talent and also like some sort of mental yeah. <laughs> or craziness. Yeah. But like to watch yeah, so basically uh, if if anyone doesn't know, so he climbed um was it Yosemite or El Yeah, El Capitan in Yosemite. El Capitan yeah. um free solo. So without ropes or anything. So rock yeah. one of the hardest but, climbs um, basically. Yeah. But basically I think it's better to see someone like that and go oh wow he's just a human like yes and just almost view it as like i you might not say like oh i could do that but it's better to think you have the potential that that isn't a possibility if you wanted it to rather than write off that person as like just super talented and like born with gifts and like yeah so that's the easy option because then you're like oh you know just happy to sit at home on the couch and never try anything. Yeah. I'm not saying like you're going to go out and rock climb or anything, but it's just better to think of the potential. Yeah. Um, it's it, And yeah, you don't have to necessarily go, oh, I want to go and free solo a cup of tan, but it makes you go, oh, I could I could rock climb if I put my mind to it. If I, you know, yeah, it, had, a, had a crack, I could probably do it. And that it feeling. just realize, yeah, that you're just a human and that yeah. guy's a human. Yeah. And like he's he's done this it's like oh what what could i do that i want to do if yeah. i just worked at it <laughs> yeah exactly oh well actually that might be a good point to wrap up on with with sort of i know you and i could talk for hours and hours um and i, I am definitely keen to get a follow-up podcast going probably maybe next time i'm in melbourne or down in yeah, victoria that good. way um but i thought you know usually it's good just to ask about like if you've got any projects on the go obviously i mentioned the running biomechanics presentation and i think you're working on one for walking as well anything that you want people to know about um so yeah that's probably the main thing um so just started i don't know how long it's going to take but i called it the a little sort of online course called the fundamentals of movement Mm -hmm. a lot of it's the stuff that I, some of it's the stuff I learned in the SNC course as like a bit of a hint of um, strength and conditioning tones in it, but it's also a mixture of sort of biomechanics and <clears throat> some of the motor learning, movement learning stuff. Um, so I've finished the running biomechanics one, so that's just on my website, Mechanics of Movement. Highly and recommend. About to, thanks, mate, <laughs> uh, about to put up just a gate biomechanics presentation recorded so you just basically get it um you can download it from a dropbox folder but um yeah gate i think walking we don't think of enough um and i kind of in it try and talk about 
the evolution of walking and how the body's adapted for efficiency. Mm. Talk a bit about biomechanics and the forces that interact on the body. And then I look at common gait compensations. Um, so it'll be about, yeah, it's about an hour long, I think. And Sweet. It's, it's just kind of a bit of an insight into different um, perspectives of gait. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, I'll hang out for that one as well. I'll definitely get on that one too. And um, yeah, man, well, we'll have a follow up and, and uh, hopefully hear more about the fundamentals of movement uh, one as it, as it progresses. Awesome. Thanks for having awesome, me on, mate. mate. Really thanks for the chat. It. And thanks guys for listening. Catch you next week.